When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From the Fifth Quarter Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, you're listening to Coach Unplugged. And now, your host, Steve Collins. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Coach Unplugged. Um, today, uh, before we jump in, we'd love to, if you'd leave a review on iTunes and, or wherever you listen to podcasts, those five stars do really help. Um, we'd also like to give a big shout out to our sponsors. Um, first of all, Dr. Dish, the number one shoe machine on the market. I'll get it out. Um, not only are they innovative, it's unbelievable how shooting machines are, are have changed. You know, I remember when they used to have those long metal racks coming from the court, um, but how they've innovated, how they've put the trainers right in front of you unbelievable so go over and check it out also go over and check out teachhoops.com for coaches who want to get better it's the one-stop shop for basketball coaches there's nothing else on the market like it nowhere else are you going to get the bat phone to the person running it no you know yes they might do quarterly or monthly or weekly calls but they're not they're not on your backing call if you have a question if you have an email trust me i will get back to you i will respond i will get on a call with you that day so come over and check out teachhoops.com for coaches who want to get better, let's head off to the podcast. These were all from the regional or from the national tournament. So these teams had seen us play, multiple times. So they know the inbounds plays. It's really at that point your technique and then being able to make plays, reads off of closeouts, um, and, and then being good enough to make the shots. Right. I love that. Let me show you one of the inbounds from that sideline here. This is the box set that we were talking about. Okay. So again, these were designed for our, our players, particular guys, right? Like right. we knew we we're going to have mismatches. And that was one that we actually earlier in the year had come from about 20 down in the game, gotten that play at the very last play. He scored it. We went on to overtime and won the game. So you hear of these kind of things all the time, right? Where you practice something earlier in the year, it either doesn't work or it does work. And then you pull it out again at the end. That was one like that that we had used earlier in the year and then pulled out at the end. I like that. Um, let me show you the quick hitters here. This is. I love that. I love that. I love when you set up in the high, high one four. 
Yeah. And so, they cut across like that. That's just such a hard thing to defend. The um, other thing that you can do with those horns plays is if you like the the one four sets, you can just bring the corner guys up. And yeah. similar to what we talked about with the out of bounds plays, you can basically double your playbook with a lot of your plays. Right. By running them out of the horn set or out of the four high. And this is the one that we had talked about where they had scouted this national championship game. You have that Iverson cut over the top and they think it's going to be a lob. And so he cheats and goes under. And when he goes under, you have the turnaround, the rescreen. The I mean, he's just, that kid. I mean, I've seen that kid shoot twice. He's a scorer because he caught that ready to shoot it. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, and two, you know, if, if you have advanced players, you can teach them if they go under, then we're flipping the screen. If they, right. so even within that, you can double your playbook by adding additional kind of little tweaks to your, to your plays. I love that. Um, is there anything else you'd like to see? No, no, that's great. Those are great. Um, so let's go back. Um, let's go back and talk about like you were talking about, cause I know this is part of what you teach about how to, um, teach plays. You were going to talk about that. Yeah. So you may be familiar with uh, coach Doug Novak up there at Bethel in Minnesota Yes. and something he, when he was on my podcast, we had talked about this. It was actually a conversation. He's kind of become a friend. My uh, in-laws live up there. And anytime I go up there, he's always very generous and makes time for me and talks with me. And something that we had talked about um, at a lunch, I said, oh, coach, I need to get you on the show to talk about this was teaching plays and ways to kind of effectively do that. Uh, for years, we had set aside time where we'd take a chunk and maybe do five on O and then you run it five on five and how you incorporate it kind of typical for most coaches. What he would do is he would actually teach the new play and everybody would, he would just have one group, his primary group that would run the play while everyone else is run, is watching. And then they would go on and do skill work. And then at any time when he wanted to, you know, according to his practice plan, he would call them back together and he actually splits up his team into three groups. He'll have his, his starters, You'll have kind of like a second starting group. Yep. And then they have either their, their JV team or their, their gold group. And so he'll just call a group and be like, all right, gold guys, you're up. And you basically get one opportunity to run the play. So it's run the play. And if it doesn't work, he says, nope, that's not right. Teammates help them out. And then they go on and do more skill work. So it's actually the players who are keeping each other accountable and teaching the plays to each other. I love that. If one guy doesn't get it right and it's always random. So we get that randomization that you're not just running through something and then the kids go and on they come back and they kind of forget it. And there's that pressure too to remember it, right? You don't want to be the, the doofus that screws it up. But I find what I find with that from someone that's coached a long time is that's great. And I've used that, I've used that skill before. What I do is make them go to a different position sometimes too, because what will happen is they'll learn one specific spot. That's the mm -hmm. same thing on out of bounds plays. And you never know, you might not be in that spot. You might, right. you know, one of the other elbows, if you're running like a, a horn set or something. And that, that's what I find. They start cheating the system a little bit. So mm -hmm. you got to really work on trying to keep them honest, quote unquote, about that. Um, and the reality is too, you're probably not going to, some of you don't have 15 players. Right. I mean, by the end of the year, a couple of years ago, we had nine. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and so you may have a kid that has to play a second position or how many times do you practice in your practice with these five and then the game starts and then two of those guys are in foul trouble and you're looking out there on the court with a lineup. You're like, we haven't practiced anything with this group. 
Right. So I think that can, <laughs> what you just said can be a huge asset for actually the games. Um, I would say one of the thing that we do a lot of times is we'll play three possessions and we'll start with an out of bounds play and I'll actually, you'll score it. So if you get to, if you get a score off of that, then that counts towards the points where you go right. to the other end, you play five on five, you come back and then we have a score and then, then we flip it around, let the other team go five on five and then, or we'll do five on O to five on five and then five on five back. So, I mean, there's plenty of ways you can do it, make it competitive. I even towards the end of the year, a couple of years ago, was just on the fly. I could tell that they were kind of bored with the way that we did it. So I said, all right, best of five. So your team would run an out-of-bounds play. If you scored, you got a point. And then the next team would run an out-of-bounds play. And if they, got it, they scored it, they got a point. And then they would huddle back up and say, okay, we're running this play. Because everybody knows that your plays, right? You can't just stand right. there and then call them. So we would huddle up and they would call the play. And they'd come back out and they have to go through every single out of bounds play where you get to number five and they knows what's coming. That's where you better set good screens and look for just the tiniest open because you got to get that score to be able to win the five at best out of five. So I like that a couple of ways you can do it, make it competitive. We're always trying to make things competitive. I think that's becoming more of a standard practice, right? Doing either small sided games or competing to some degree. Um, But we try to keep every part of practice as competitive as possible, especially at the college level. I mean, those kids, they want playing time, right? So, you know, what's going to separate? Well, how well did you compete in practice? How well did you play with that group that you were with on the floor? And I love small sided games. I think what Oliver's done is great with all that stuff. I think that, that the problem is I have kids that can't, that I have to te- I have to spend time teaching actual skills too. Sure. It's like, you know, sure. it's so hard. And it's like, if you only do one thing, it's like teaching. I've taught for 30 years. If I only lecture all the time, they're going to tune me out. If I only yeah. do group work, they're going to tune me out. I yeah. think a good practice has everything to be yeah. honest with you. Um, yeah. It's like a good classroom. Um, right. You know, there's more than one way of painting, a, you know, doing a painting. You know, if you if we all do the same right. way, we all we all look at the same landscape and try to paint it. It's all going to be a little different. Um, I think that's important for coaches that are listening too. it's like you got to find what works for you and your players. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Variety and competitive and especially with my guys is the more competitive I can make it, the better I think it is. Um, so what do you think the hardest thing to teach is? Uh, I mean, the hardest, as far as hardest goes, I would say the or difficult just, for you, you know, or difficult for the players. It doesn't. Yeah. Matter. I would say that, that at this point, it's the, what takes the greatest amount of time to learn. And I think what you just said is, is key there this week on my podcast, actually today, the time of our recording, this is the 10 year anniversary of the passing of John Wood. Okay. And so we have a special series this week devoted to John Wooden and people that were affected and impacted by him. And um, something that was said the other day by one of the guests was he knew how the students learned and he catered his teaching to their learning. And, f- you know, I don't know that there's one thing that comes to mind as far as like, what's the hardest thing to teach? The hardest thing is getting my players to understand and, and understand how they learn. So I think it kind of rests more on me than it does on the the student. And I think probably as a younger coach, you're thinking, or you don't think, and you just teach and you're like, I don't understand why they don't get it. Right. And you think that maybe they're the problem. But I think as you get older, you understand this, like I'm the problem. So how can I fix the way that I'm teaching it? 
And once you realize that some kids are verbal, some kids are kinesthetic, some kids are visual, you're going to be missing kids. Are, some kids are going to be harder to reach than others. And it's not their fault. It's your fault. It is. Let me, let me just give one story. So talking about that tactile kinesthetic learner. So I'm explaining a play to a kid and I'm saying, you need to screen. And then I think there was a screen rescreen action. You need to screen and then you need to turn this way and rescreen again, because if you turn the other way, then the defense can slip through. So it's important that you turn this way. He turned the wrong way, like three to five times. Finally, I went out there. I, like I showed him, I said, all right, this way, and then turn this way. He's standing literally almost face to face for me. So I know he can see me. And he went out and turned the wrong way again. The, finally, the last time I grabbed them by the shoulders and said, all right, we're going to walk through this. You're going to screen and then turn this way. And he started turning against me. And I had to, with my strength, turn him the right way. Right. And as I'm turning him, he kind of like let his strength go and turn the right way with me. And you could almost see like a light bulb go off in his head. Like he just right. had to do it the right way himself. Right. And then he turned the right way. Right. And that wasn't on, that wasn't my fault. I mean, right. excuse me, that wasn't his fault. That was my fault. I hadn't, right. I hadn't, I hadn't reached him. So I would say that the hardest thing is not teaching a play or blob or a slob or conceptual offense or the right way to play defense. The hardest thing is communicating so that they can learn so that we can accomplish whatever we're trying to do. It, it, and here's a couple of side notes. First of all, it's about knowing, I think the hardest part of, I mean, I'm married to a psychologist, but I think part of the hardest part of coaching is there's plenty of resources, learning out of bounds, play all that. You got to learn your players. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I'll tell you a story. I had a player this year that, that he was just like, he was, having, he was like my sixth or seventh man. He was having a tough day. I had him in class. I knew he was having a tough day. Him and I already talked and my assistants come in and we're practicing and he's just like, he's just not with it. No one. And I knew at that point he needed to be left alone. He didn't need mm -hmm. to be yelled at. He didn't need to be like, corrupt. and I, and I would gather him back in, but mm -hmm. It's, it's reading, I think the hardest part is, as, especially as a young coach, is learning. you got to spend the time to learn each one of them <laughs> and how they, you know, I was the kind of kid that if you got on me, I took it personally, and mm -hmm. I was going to go do it right. I didn't like, it, what, coach was just trying to make me better. I, that was the kind of player I was. But a lot of players aren't that way. It's like, I think that read is really, really hard. Um, you know, yeah, we, I just had a guest on that talked about the disc assessment and it's basically understanding your players their personality the things that motivates them their behavioral tendencies you we say this but you don't know it until you know it right and right. it's that you play psychology and psychologist a lot of times as a coach like yes. there are times and you can if you know your players well I can tell as a kid is entering the gym, he's having a rough day. This probably isn't going to be a very good practice for him. Right. And I just have to give him the grace kind of to have a bad practice, even though it may go against what I want my plans, but you know, you're, you're a coach, right? And you understand that this is only a part of their life. They've got other things going on outside of that. And so I think just like you said, taking the time to understand your players, understand how they learn, understand the other influences that are in their lives. And then how can I help with all of those together? Right. I think that's the hardest. That's one of the biggest challenges for a coach is it is for a teacher too. Mm -hmm. um, especially in the last couple of months as a teacher trying to, trying to teach the things I need to teach 
by a this zoom and by a, you know just it's been hard i mean i it's 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 probably the hardest two months of my teaching career in 30 plus years um because i think it's such teaching is such a um interactive thing uh and you know not that we're not you and i aren't interacting but it would be different if we were sitting in a room having breakfast together right. um you know what i mean there's i don't know how to quantify that but it's different um and i think that's a challenge all of us are facing right now. Um, I, I think it's important to remember too, we say that, you know, things aren't like they used to be, you know, we've discovered that the effective way now is not to just sit and lecture all the time. Right. The truth of the matter is 50, 60 years ago, kids were more inclined to and trained to because of their other activities to sit and listen for longer periods of time. Right. It's maybe not that we're it's better now that we're doing it this way. It's that we're adapting to how they already are conditioned to learn. Right. And if you're not interactive and if you're not engaging and asking questions, like that's another thing that I would encourage coaches. If you're the one talking all the time and there's no questions being asked and no answers being given by your players, don't expect them to be decision makers and problem solvers. Right. Another thing that we talk about in sports now it's not just teaching them the technical skills and the tactical skills, it's the decision-making skills as well. But if you're not using that, those techniques in practice to teach them decision-making and, you know, answering questions, like don't expect them to be good decision-makers in games. I agree. Um, so give me a two sentence coaching, your coaching philosophy in two sentences or three or one. Yeah. I, there, there's just so much more that goes into to it than just the basketball, right? I mean, we just talked about the other components and the fact of the matter is is that these kids are, they're gone after four years, but I do know in those four years that I probably have at least as good, big of an impact, probably greater impact on them than anybody else in their life because of the fact that the amount of time that we're spending together, you know, at the college level, especially I'm with them in practice. I'm with them on overnight trips. I'm with them in the vans and the buses. And so I've been even challenged to kind of make the most of those opportunities. And it's not talking to them all the time because they don't want to be talked to all the time, but just knowing that I care, I think even right now, this day and age that we're living in the situations that we're going through, like sending them a text and making sure that they know that I care about how they're thinking and how they're feeling. Right. So I think overall, that's what I do. I send like, I'll, I'll send a Snapchat to, I have a couple of yeah. groups that, since the quarantine. I mean, and I'll just, I'll send it to my varsity. I'll send it to my, I'll say, Hey, how you guys doing? You know, and I'll, I'll be on a walk or something. And it'll, you know, it's like just checking in kind of, yeah. um, it, I think it, just being imp- I mean, philosophy, if I, one sentence is just impacting them, impacting them for life and beyond. I mean, you know, basketball and beyond because you know, it, it ends at basketball, but there's a good chance that, and I hope that we talk about our program being family. You know, I bring my family around a lot. They all know the players. Um, the players all know them. I, I want them to see me and my family and see this is the way that hopefully I'm doing it, doing it the right way. Right. That the family should be raised. And I've got some that don't have fathers. I've got some who have split homes. Right. Like I want to show them what a home looks like that love each other and that you know want their kids to grow up the right way and that they need to be a leader and provide and so you know the the impact beyond basketball is is 
bigger for us than the basketball. I mean, the basketball usually takes care of itself when your culture is right. And I think the culture is based off of what you value. And if you're valuing the right things, it's kind of all circular, right? Like the basketball again, will take care of itself. What's uh, what's one thing you've learned in the last six months? As a teacher, I'm just constantly, it may not be the last six months, but I'm just reminded of it in the last six months is to be a continual learner. Um, A quote that I saw the other day, I'll butcher it, but you know, gaining knowledge is not always learning. So in this day and age, especially as we sit here as, you know, the ironic part is both of us produce content for other people to learn from. Right. I'm going to continue to do that. But the fact of the matter is by it's not going to make me a better coach by just watching all 500 virtual clinics. Right. Right. Like I, I need to sit down and actually focus on something. And that was something we, we instituted a new offense this last year. And I really dove into it, made it my own. And I felt like I really grew in an area that I didn't know a lot about, but I spent a lot of time on it. And so in this day where we consume a lot of knowledge and information, there can probably be too much that I'm, I'm gaining and too much that I'm learning, that I'm listening to, but I'm not really learning. Right. And oh, those clinics, goes- when, when the pandemic started, those clinics, I literally would pick one a day and watch because it was too much it was first of all like oh my god this is like this is overload and i went for about two weeks and then i just stopped and it wasn't that the clinics weren't any good anymore right it it was just that like i was just at maximum capacity and i felt too like i really wasn't learning anything i was just hearing good stuff that was great but i I really wasn't learning anything and the problem is it just comes in it's kind of like it just comes in and then it goes away because it's like oh that's great but it's not you didn't you're not it's like i it's like diving into a good book you dive into the book and you learn and you bow and then you go out then you'll remember that stuff it's when with all that noise i think it's really hard um is there one is there one moment one um coaching moment success a failure that we could dive into that a young coach might learn from? Yeah, I think it, I've spoken to that national championship game. So I'll just tell you how it worked out. In the last few seconds, we had an opportunity with about 10 seconds left to win the game. And we were down by one point, <laughs> brought the ball over to the sidelines and called a timeout and ran a play. And looking back on it, I, I don't regret it. But the things that I, in the moment I did, because I thought, oh man, if we had only done this, And I think just being more prepared for those moments, it's not necessary that your players are prepared for everything. I think they need to be prepared, but it's, it's a sport where you don't know what the opponents are going to do. And there's a lot of opponents, right? Right. So like, there's so many factors that you can't control, but we talk about controlling the controllables. And one of those controllables is you being completely prepared. So I think, you know, me being prepared for exactly what I want, to happen at the end of a game, um, you know, and all the possibilities. And, you know, again, the players don't need to know what all of those possibilities are, or what the defense is, you know, a whole, we could talk a whole nother podcast about scouting. Right. And right. I can tell you literally everything about every, about every player on the opposite team. But the truth of the matter is your players aren't going to remember any of it. Right. Right. So I can't, there's a point where I can give them too much information, but that doesn't mean that I don't need to know all that. Right. And so just making sure that I'm prepared for each moment, I think that goes back to the point that we just talked about. And as a teacher, I'm probably biased to this, but 
I just feel like I need to keep learning. I need to keep growing. I need to keep um, expanding what I know and what I understand so that I'm prepared for whatever comes next or that I can lead those young people into whatever that is and be prepared. Like you, you know, this feeling, you don't want to be in a situation where everybody's looking at you. Right. And you don't know what to do. Right. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer. He can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything. Now you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chumpacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And I think that that only comes with time. And I think that we're never, as individuals, prepared for everything. But I can continue to grow and learn. And that's something going back to that John Wooden, you know, Steve Lavin, I was talking to him about it last week. And he said, coach was learning up until the day that he died. And I think we all know that, but actually being devoted to that and taking the time to do that is something different. It's, it is, it is. And I tell the co- I tell young coaches too. I said, you need to know everything. Your players don't need to know everything. I mean, exactly. I need to know how to run a one, three, one, and I need to know how to counter it. They don't. <laughs> they need to know some things, but you, you know, that's where you have to be Yoda um, and you have to know all. And then, you know, they have to, you have to be able to convey that to them when they need it. Um, I would say too, like that, it takes a, a dose of humility as well. There are times where I don't tell my players everything. Right. And I know sometimes they're thinking like this guy's an idiot or this guy really doesn't know what he's talking about. And I can stand there and defend myself and say, yeah, I, I know. And, and I think younger coaches probably are more apt to do that. I probably was when I was a younger coach. Right. But there are times where I can see it on their face. Like I've coached long enough where I can tell that you're thinking right now that I'm an idiot. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I know more about this situation than you do, but I don't need to tell you that. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I agree. Uh, all right. So let's do rapid fire. These are just qu- quick questions. Um, What's your favorite, what's the favorite brand of basketball, the actual ball you used to play with and why? Um, I can't even think of it. What, oh, the jet. And I think the, the, I'm talking about the old Wilson jet. Wow. No one has said that. And w- 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 so that made <laughs> I don't even know if I've I seen a Wilson have. jet. They tried to bring them back and remake them. And when they brought them back, so probably the people that are listening to this are like, that ball is junk. And it was junk. I'm talking about the original Wilson Jets. Okay. They, were, they were great. I had two, two or three of them. Um, but we're talking about like the 90s jet, not the and, 2000s jet. And they were, it was the feel. You like the feel. Too, it wasn't too tacky. It also wasn't too slick. It was, I mean, it was a ball ahead of its time. Okay. Um, one word to describe your ideal player. Teachable. Um, one thing you would change about the game. Not for me, but for you guys is the shot clock. Okay. We, you, you and I could have an hour discussion on the shot clock at some point. I'm not anti-shot clock. I'm just not sure what it does to the game. Like, how does it improve the game? Uh, selfishly, for me, it is kind of a, I think it's boring, first of all, with the shot clock. <clears throat> I went to a game one time recruiting, and it was awful. <laughs> Right. And then it doesn't do it doesn't do your players who are going on, which I know is a small percentage. Very small, very <laughs> small percentage. Yeah. 
but it doesn't do them any advantage. Right. No, I agree. And the thing is, I think, and here's, here's my counter to that. The game you want, I'm a, I'm a statistician by trade. So the game you saw was an observational study, which was you just seeing one thing and it really sticking with you. There's tens of thousands of games that it's not an issue. Um, I I do think it, you know, it, it it would be different for me though, coaching at that level because it changes strategy towards the end of a game. It does change strategy. And the thing is, I deal with players that when they have the ball in the hand can do something with it. There's a lot of, a lot of small towns, lots of Mm -hmm. things that I don't know necessarily it would be good for the game at that level. Mm -hmm. You know, we think about it in our level, like my guys, most of my guys can play college basketball if they want, if they play for me. Right. You know, we're dealing with kids that, you know, they, this, they pick it up after, you know, football season and that's all they do. And it's like, or, you know, it's a it's a small school in rural Wisconsin who has seven kids on the roster. I, I mean, that's my I don't think it's coming. I definitely think it's not coming now because of finances. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think, too, you know, a lot of it is influenced. The coaches that I hear speaking about it are influenced by style of play. And if you look historically at the game, style of play is associated with region of the country. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yep historically it is yep. it has been changing and so you probably get voiced opinions of people who prefer a style of play that aren't and i play a very fast style the most i don't think the shot clock would be an issue i'm just i understand why the three-point line came in i understand i personally think it's not i mean i think we should get rid of the jump ball that's my thing before i'm done with this thing mm-hmm. why do we jump the balls at the beginning of the game why mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. they're horrible at tossing it and you know it's an archaic thing why are we doing that anymore um why don't we just give it to the visiting team and start the game on the sideline let's go like i mean it's archaic so i mean i understand rule changes but the rule changes should have a meaning behind them that's my only issue with the shot clock i you know i i don't think it would come into play i think you can teach people to do it you know one of the arguments is it's a hard thing to do i agree but i think um you know it's yeah. Anyway, it's that that could be an eight-hour discussion. About shot <laughs> it is literally whenever I want to get people going on Twitter, I'll just ask about the shot clock. Yeah. There is you are in one camp or another. I'm actually in the middle. I don't really care. No. I just I'm just not sure what it does for the game. I think what makes high school unique is it doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. Most of it doesn't have it. Um, mm-hmm. That you can play a different style. Um, you know, if it, I think it's going to become more vanilla if everybody in the country had the shot clock, I think the games would become very similar, mm-hmm. um, similar to the collegiate game, mm-hmm. um, especially at the D one level. But I don't know. Just <laughs> you know, we could talk about this. There's a counter and a and a and another counter to every shot clock discussion. Right. Uh, if you go to one sporting event, what would you go to and why? I've already been to it. It was a national championship game, and my team won, so I feel like experience is kind of over at this point. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite pregame meal? I actually don't eat that much after or before because I know that the postgame meal is probably going to be better than the pregame meal. So the <laughs> pregame meal is typically like a salad. <laughs> okay. I, I don't normally eat. I usually forget to eat. Um, one skill not being taught in today's game. I think it's what we talked about earlier, and it's not that it's not being taught. I just think that we're just not used to teaching it is the decision-making. Okay. And I, I, I think that there's ways to do it to do it more effectively, but people are learning how to do that. And what does that mean? That's one of those terms like decision-making. Okay. So what does that actually look like? And I think as a teacher, you know, breaking the skills down to those details, this is what teaching the players what to look for. And that we talked about earlier, 
I think just us becoming better at decision making um, rather than and coaches aren't doing it. I just don't feel like they know exactly the best way to do it yet. Do you think this is a side note, not a, not a question from my list. Um, do you think kids are better or worse shooters than they were 10 years ago? Ours are better, but that's because we spend more time on it. Um, at, I know at the high school level, it's not fair too, because I'm getting players who typically are your better shooters because right. they're playing at the college level. Right. right. So, um, but I do know working with camps and working with my other coaching friends who have come to me for advice, I've told them spend more time on shooting and their teams have gotten better at shooting and they win more games. Like they do. it's just simply, they do. I think, I, I think everybody it. can be a shooter. I'm not sure everyone can be a scorer. Correct. Um, I think everybody can be a shooter. Like I would agree. Um, what? Here's a side note. This is another side note. Just a question for you, because I again listen to your podcast last. What do you think of the mid game, the mid shot, the the, the not the not the three footer and in, and not the three pointer and out? Do you think the mid range game is coming back? I think it's gonna. I think in the next five to seven years, it's gonna come back. So let me just teach you, ta- tell you how I teach at the college level. What I typically find is when kids come in, they want to be shooting off the dribble. They just practice. I mean, you watch a kid before practice, right? Like he's just shooting everything. Right. And what you end up is with a master of none. Right. And so what I will work on with their freshman year is they will come in and they will shoot catch and shoot from spots on the floor that I know in our offense, they will get catch and shoot threes. Okay. So we work exclusively, literally exclusively on that. Once they, I feel like they've achieved kind of like where I want them to be with that. Then we'll start working on shooting off the dribble, catch and shoot three. Then when I feel like they're, or they've put in a lot of work off the dribble, one bounce, you know, the shot fake, one bounce, pull up, jump shot. There was a player in those clips that I was just showing you. He was an all American and he was fantastic at shooting from deep. He was, I think, at his senior year, a 40, like a 40, 50, 90. I think actually he was close to being a 50, 50, 90 kid. And he was fantastic at shooting from three, which means that defenders would fall for his shot fake. He'd take one dribble, mid-range pull-up jump shot, and he shot around 50-plus percent there. I think we're all against the mid-range because kids aren't good at it kids aren't good at it because they don't practice it. I'm not saying that you should spend more time practicing it. I'm saying if a kid practices it and you're okay with it, then become a mid-range shooter. The problem is, is that we don't teach finishing. We teach finishing by getting out a giant pad and whopping them in the head when they get to the basket and say that we're practicing finishing and the kids can't finish because nobody can finish when they're getting whopped in the head right. with a giant red pad. Like I just think, again, it goes back to the way that you practice. So what are you going to value? What are you going to spend your time practicing? And if the mid range shot is, you know, how many kids do we have that you can tell them to get to the basket and finish, but they're so small or they're not strong enough that they're not going to finish anyways. A kid may be somebody that you want him to teach a mid-range jump shot. Right. That's what I'm doing with my son. He's about 6'1", and it's like he can shoot the three like no tomorrow. I said, your next step is not the rim. Your next step is the mid-range. Because I think a lot of – I think a lot of – when you – well, I've watched enough film. You've probably watched more than me. But you notice that there's a lot of openings right now in the Mm mid-range. Like Mm -hmm. people are leaving that. 
Um, well, if you think about it, where are your help defenders? Your help defenders are in the paint because their players are in the paint because all we pay attention to is the paint and the three-point line. Right. So I think that if you're able to do it, then you are going to carve out a niche for yourself. I do. And I think I love what you said about that, that progression of, you know, master this. I mean, mm-hmm. Don't be a master of none. Be a master this. And then once you've mastered that, I have other things in the toolbox you can use. Um, some, some, I had a couple of guests on who are, if I mentioned them, the audience would know who they are and they don't necessarily agree with that entirely. It's not, they disagree with it. They just are more open to kind of, I think it goes back again to that randomizing principle. Right. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. We shoot from different spots on the floor. It's just that once you start putting the ball on the floor and then getting the ball up, you're adding so many additional factors into getting that ball right to the right shot pocket and shooting it at the right release point. You're just adding additional factors. That's the reason why I start with catch and shoot. If you teach it the right way, you can't really screw up. I catch, I get it to where I need to get it, and I shoot it and release it, and it goes in. You start bouncing it. I mean, we're talking about are you a left-hand pull-up shooter because you've got to bring the ball now across your body are you all right bounce pull up shoot like the ball is right. all over the place right and you just immediately decrease the consistency in your shooting. but i even think i even think so i even think you can find mid-range off the catch like i'm not even saying complicate the what they're doing from behind the three yeah. i think there's i think there's an opening and this is just yeah. me this is just me spitting stuff out at this point i think there's an opening over the next five to 10 years. Cause everyone, if you, everyone's doing analytics, everyone's doing shoot threes or attack the rim. Mm-hmm. I just think there's a, I think there's an opening for, for people. No one's talking about it unless I'm missing it. About yeah, that a lot mid- of it too, I think has to do with where you're again, going back to style, where are you originally placing your players on the floor? Right. And I think that, you know, you and I are from a time you Reggie Miller, started out underneath of the basket and is running off pin downs right if you think about it how many plays start off with i run off a pin down off the bottom the, the defender is locking and chasing and i'm curling into an open spot somewhere around 15 feet feet catching right. it and shooting it like it's, it's i think again it goes back to style i do too i mean i i'll, I'll beat anybody in a buff because we used to when i was in high school we ran like a very structured i mean and we were there was no three-point line when i was in high school and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll beat any one of my guys right now shooting 15 mm-hmm. footers because I, that's what I did. Yeah. I didn't, there was no reason for yeah. me to move deeper. Uh, <laughs> I didn't need to. Right. Um, all right. Well, how, what do you do to relax? What's one thing you do to relax? Um, this is what I, I have had other coaches get after me for this. What I do to relax is to talk to you about basketball and okay. watch basketball. And it's just a hobby. I mean, I, I just, I love it. So yeah. outside of that, just spending time with my kids going on a walk or whatever. Oh yeah. Your kids are a great age. What, uh, what coaching technique do you consider important? Uh, the teaching. Okay. Uh, I I think, yeah, go ahead. ahead. Well, I I think that the teaching is something that we all know is important, but until you get reps doing it, you're probably not going to be a very good teacher. And I think that that just takes time. And so I do think that it's a skill, but it's not just a skill that either you have or you don't have. I think that you can get better at it, but you need to put yourself in positions to teach as much as possible. There are a ton of guys out there who know the game. And I guarantee you there are a ton of guys who are sitting on benches at the D1 level who know far more than 
I do or any other teacher does, but I get reps in the classroom literally every day. And I think that I have an advantage over some of those who just stand on the sidelines and do a little teaching here and there. Right. I agree. Um, what's, um, what's the best, what's the best, ba best basketball player you have seen, you have seen in person? I mean, I don't know about like the best, but like just the most impressive is just, I, I, I'm from South Carolina and, you know, I recruited up at, uh, the star center where Zion played all of his games. And so I'll just go with most impressive the, oh, there was his junior year where it was before everybody knew who he was. So I was sitting in stands that weren't that packed on one of these side courts and he went up for a dunk and missed the dunk and it ricocheted back to half half court and it was the most impressive dunk I've ever seen. And it didn't go in. I know we played now. We, we played it. We played, we came out for a tournament at Dunham, Dunham, um, Durham, Dorman, Durham. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a pr pr impressive high school facility. Um, yeah. yeah, but, uh, that, that was when Zion was still down there. So he was definitely the talk in Spartanburg. Yeah. Um, uh, what's, um, best player of all time at what level? Just best player of all time in the world. Well, I mean, Jordan, but okay. At the college level, Kareem, the player that I would want to play with is LeBron. So I know those are all different answers. Those are all different I, answers. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think there's one that lives in Wisconsin right now that's got, could be in the discussion by the time he's done, I think. Oh, okay. I think, right. Gian, I think Giannis could be that special. I do. Yeah. I really do. I don't know. Yeah. He's, just, he, he's a basketball body when you look at him and see him play in person. He puts some, ooh, I don't know. It'll be, will be interesting. It has to be a freakish that. element. Yeah, yes. there has to be. Yeah, to be that player, you have to be one in a million. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing that's helped you become a better coach? Actually, I think it's – I talked about uh, Coach Uaro and his – and Coach Ring, who coached before, was like this as well. I was just in a different position. But those were – both of them were individuals who gave me a responsibility and then let me learn in that responsibility. I think if you can – I would say to young coaches, get on a staff – where the coach is not a micromanager and is interested in investing in you. And, you know, it's not, it's not about, Hey, what will you do for me? Those things, most coaches are willing to invest in you and let you grow and develop. And both of those men have really given me responsibility and then let me learn and not like been harsh and correcting me. But if you can, if you can get in a situation, and where you can so i appreciate coming on i really do i really do absolutely um, i i really appreciate you having me on thanks coach hey everybody hope you enjoyed the podcast make sure you subscribe and like leave a review we love those five star reviews we're gonna leave a one star you can skip to the next podcast also go over and check out teachhoops.com for coaches who want to get better sports social podcast network step into the world of power loyalty and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.